Have you ever heard the phrase, there's more than one way to skin a cat? It's probably a phrase that you've said before, even if you don't really know what it means or where it comes from. It's kind of a grisly image if you just first think about it. Who, who needs to skin a cat in the first place, right? Um, in reality, this is an old uh, fishing phrase. If you've ever gone fishing in the Delta, uh, one of the fish you've probably pulled out of the Delta is a catfish. And catfish are notoriously difficult to scale. Uh, if you go about it the normal way, uh, then you're going to spend your time being frustrated and you're probably going to end up mutilating the, the meat and so it's not even very good to grill at the end of the experience. But if you go about it a completely different way, if you take that catfish and put it into boiling water, right Charles? First, then it will loosen up the skin and it will cause the skin to come off more easily. And so um, there is more than one way to skin a catfish. That's what that actually means. Um, we as people are often looking for new and better ways to do the things that we have to do in life. For King Solomon, who was born and raised a faithful Israelite, the answer to the question, what is the meaning of life, was not some great mystery to him. God had entered into a holy covenant with Israel, his chosen people. He had established a relationship with them. They were to be his people, and he was to be their God. Through the law, God had shown Israel how they were to live. He had established meaning for them. The great commandment of the law was plainly laid out in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 5 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord, He is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. That was the essence of life's meaning to an Israelite. That's how every Jew was to find contentment and joy. Loving the Lord. Putting Him first above all things. But the curious mind of man always tends to wonder if there's a better way. Is there a different way to skin the cat? Is there an alternative way of life by which mankind might find meaning? By which humans can experience contentment and fulfillment apart from the way that God has established for His people. That is essentially the point of this Old Testament book, Ecclesiastes. The preacher of the book is determined to explore the alternatives for us to see if any of them can also fulfill us like pursuing God can fulfill us. So far, the possibility with the most potential has failed right out of the gate. Last week, at the end of chapter 1, the preacher applied his heart to know wisdom. He wondered if wisdom and knowledge could fulfill, if by wisdom we could find purpose and meaning and contentment in life. And so last week the preacher concluded that for all of its virtues, wisdom is not the answer to man's problems. Man cannot see all. His wisdom is too limited, it is too inaccurate to ensure the kind of lasting certainty that is required for true contentment and satisfaction. But there are still other possibilities. And the preacher is open to giving them an honest try. And so today we are in Ecclesiastes chapter 2. And we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 3. I said in my heart, Come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad. And of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom. 
and how to lay hold of folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. Chapter 2 begins here with the preacher addressing not us so much as himself. I said in my heart, verse 1 begins. This indicates that our narrator is having a kind of intellectual conversation with himself. He is thinking deeply in a meditative way. He is weighing the facts that he sees so that he might make a good judgment about the ways of life that he is considering. The book of Ecclesiastes leans heavily on this idea of self-reflection and inner dialogue. That activity is sorely underdeveloped in most people today. The idea of thinking things through critically, of asking questions of the world, and drawing conclusions is not commonly put into practice. Sure, we often hear people telling us that we should strive to have an open mind about things, don't we? But the idea of having an open mind and having a mind that is reflective, that is determined to discern what is best, those are not the same things. Being open-minded usually implies that someone's willing to initially say yes to whatever they find. They are agreeing ahead of time to be generally accepting to whatever philosophy or way of life that others want to hold to. That's open-mindedness to our society. That open-minded approach sounds very friendly, but it leaves one open to a huge range of life experiences. Having tasted of all these experiences, one might then develop personal preference. But the idea is that closed-mindedness will miss out on much of life because a closed-minded person is too afraid to try, too dependent on their traditions, too holding too closely to what they already know. But observe the way that the preacher of Ecclesiastes goes about his self-reflection. This is not a reckless, I'll-try-anything attitude. His approach is to critically apply his mind to each experience that he is trying to understand. We will see again and again phrases like the one in verse 3 that we're studying today. I searched with my heart. This is not somebody who's just allowing life to come at him at whatever speed it wants to. He is searching out the ways of the world with his heart. He says, my heart's still guiding me with wisdom. We're going to talk in a little bit about how though wisdom is not the answer to life's problems, it is still a tool that God gives us that we would be neglectful to stop using in our pursuit of truth. And so he guides his heart with the wisdom that God has given to him till he might see what was good. And this implies that not all things are good. To be totally open-minded to the world and to think that all ways of thinking are equal is false. Wicked and goodness both exist in this life that we are experiencing. And we must strive to see the difference between the two. So if you want to be open-minded, then at least commit yourself to being discerning in the things that you explore. We're going to see throughout the book of Ecclesiastes phrases like, I saw, and I perceived, and I determined, and I understood. These phrases are going to show up again and again in this book, and they prove that the preacher is doing more than just accepting and embracing the ways of the world. He's analyzing. He's processing. He's comparing. And all in the belief that there is a best way to live. There is a good pursuit of life out there. At the same time, there is a wrong way to live. 
In fact, there are many wrong ways to live. And we can't be afraid to call things by their true names. Though Ecclesiastes explores the way of the world, King Solomon never loses track of his background, of his foundation. He remains mindful of the purpose and meaning that he started this journey with. And he weighs all those worldly options that he discovers against that original understanding. Though he seems willing to leave the boundaries of orthodox faithfulness to God at times, he does so critically as an explorer. An explorer who is mapping out the terrain of a treacherous expedition so that the others who follow after him might not fall into the same snares and dangers as one who was wandering aimlessly without direction. As a child, uh, I found out that whenever my parents would drive us somewhere, I wasn't the one at the wheel, so I was never paying attention to where we were going. I was always in my head. I was thinking about cartoons, or I was thinking about what I was going to do later when I got to where we were going. I was always processing my own things and ignoring the, the, the scenery that was buzzing by the window. And so then when I got my license as a teenager, I was blown away by how primitive my navigation skills were. And it, it pains me to say this in public from a pulpit, I was completely lost as a 16-year-old who had a license and who could now go the places that he wanted to go but could never find where those places were because I just had never taken the time to think about them. I let somebody else drive me somewhere. I let somebody else worry about the directions and the plotting the course. My parents were responsible for that, so I was very limited in where I was able to go. I actually lived with my dad at the time in Livermore. Uh, my mom and my stepdad and my family uh, on that side lived in Pittsburgh. And I remember when I first got my license, I was like, I can go visit my mom anytime now. And I got in my car and I started to drive to my mom's in Pittsburgh and had a nice day in Lafayette. <laughs> because I, I had never paid attention to the exchange between 680 and 24. Now, at that time, it was totally different than it is now, but I, I had no idea. And it was not like I could just pull out my phone and figure out where I was. I was lost because I was a dummy and there was, there was no hiding it. If we pay no attention to the details of what's going on around us, then we will find ourselves easily lost or even more easily led astray. The mind that does not test itself will scarcely ever grow. Let us, as we read this, make the conscious decision that as we walk through our days, we will not do so as oblivious children but as careful observers who desire to make sense of the things that God allows us to see and experience. Don't just be open, be observant. Weigh what you hear from others against the truth that God has revealed to you through His Word. Not that, or know rather, that all ways are not good ways. Not all approaches to life are created equal. So in his personal reflection, the preacher tells himself, he says, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. Is this not the default answer for the average person on the street today who is seeking to know what the secret of life is? Who is not living for the basic goal of finding happiness and enjoying life? It seems that's what everybody is living for. It may seem strange to some hearing this sermon that there are even other paths that need to be considered. Of course, the reason we're alive is to try to be happy, right? To the great majority of those who live apart from God, and even to a great many who claim to be near to God, enjoyment is the end-all, be-all of existence. 
The whole point of life for many is to find a way to be consistently happy. So Solomon will consider whether that is truly the answer. Is the answer to life's great questions hiding in the pleasures of life? And if we're honest, many of us would secretly like to take that journey ourselves. Many of us would like to put that to the test. This past week in our e-blast, which is the weekly email reminder that goes out uh, to our people, letting them know what's happening in the church, keeping you all up to speed, uh, Pastor Paul included, included a great article. And I don't know if you read those, but um, this is what you see, a little symbol on the bottom of our e-blast. If you click on that, it'll take you to these articles that our elders um, have been reading and, and think are, are good and beneficial to the people of the church. And we hope that you'll click on them and read them and, and grow. This particular article pointed out that there is something wrong if you are spending a good part of your time on a Sunday morning, on the Lord's Day, when you're supposed to be engaged in worship, when you're supposed to be enjoying the presence of God, if you are spending most of your time wishing it would all get done sooner, there is something wrong. If your mind and your heart is thinking more about what will happen after this is all checked off the list and done, then there's something off. Too many people can't wait to get out of church and back to the other things in life, the things that in reality often matter so much more to them than God does. The author of that article suggests, his name's Marshall Seagal, he suggests that those things that we are pining to get back to are often the things that we truly worship. Many of us refrain from the sinful pursuit of what is carnal. At least we give it the old college try. We don't want to fall into the, the same patterns of hedonism, of pleasurely existence in the rest of the world, For but inside of our hearts, some of us Christians are secretly longing for them. We follow right along on the journey to the promised land. We do what good Christians are supposed to do, but in some ways we pine for the comforts of our own personal Egypt. We feel like we're missing out because we've chosen to follow Jesus. Maybe we need Ecclesiastes to remind us that the freedom that we are jealous of in our secular neighbors is nothing but vanity and grasping after wind as the preacher of Ecclesiastes wants to show us today. Here's an interesting note for us. Solomon doesn't go into much detail at all regarding the earthly pleasures that he experienced. Did you notice that? In these verses where he's pursuing pleasures, he doesn't talk about all of his exploits or brag about the things that he has done. He, he keeps it very simple here. Now this is perhaps an example of modesty. Maybe it's evidence of a caution against stirring people's passions and desires. I know sometimes we can be so open with our testimony of what we were like when we were sinful that we might even make somebody else stumble into things that they would have never thought to do. Perhaps that is what Solomon is doing here in being so brief. Maybe he doesn't want to stir up in our hearts that which he knows we're already contending with. The pleasures that draw us away from God are very diverse. And what captures one person's attention might not be remotely interesting to another. So maybe he's just conceding to the fact that he can't cover all of the pleasures. And you probably know what pleasure distracts you from God in the first place anyway. We know already some of the struggles that the historical Solomon fell into regarding pleasure from other parts of Scripture. In 1 Kings 11, 1-3, it says, Now King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women. 
from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, You shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines. And his wives turned away his heart. Wives aren't the only ones who can turn away hearts. Sometimes it's sports. Sometimes it's fashion. Sometimes it's money. There are so many things in this world that would love to try to provide for us some worldly pleasure, some enjoyment that is obvious and tangible and right in front of our eyes, but in doing so often obscure the greater joy of being near to the Lord God and drawing close to Him and the desires He has for our lives. Some of this will drift into the multiplication of possessions which Solomon Uh, fell into, which we will discuss in more detail next week. But it is enough to acknowledge this morning that though he doesn't go into great detail about what he has experienced, the historical Solomon who writes this passage had ample opportunity to test for himself whether pleasure could really produce the lasting happiness and purpose that the human heart strives for. He could have whatever he wanted. He had more opportunity than anybody in his day to be fulfilled by the things of this world. And so we should listen closely to his experience. There are three worldly pleasures that Solomon does reference directly in this text of three verses today, each of which are a common target for those who want to find their satisfaction in the physical, in the temporal world. And we're going to look at each of them. The first one he mentions is laughter. Can laughter satisfy us? It has been said that laughter is the best medicine, which is probably true unless you're actually sick. In which case, medicine is the best medicine, usually, for that. Uh, Although laughter can really help our hearts and ease our tensions, when you are truly struggling with something real, laughter will almost never reverse the current of ill health that a sickness can bring upon us. The fact that the average doctor is bringing in six-figure salaries while the vast majority of stand-up comedians are struggling to keep their heads above water probably means that a more accurate picture of the value of power of laughter is that laughter is good, but there are more important things in life. The culture we are a part of generally gives humor and laughter more credit, I think, than it really deserves. When the prevailing opinion is, if it makes you happy, it must be good for you, then laughter and humor, of course, will be seen as unquestionably beneficial. But the Word of God delivers a more sober assessment to us. And so I would like for us to examine it today. In Proverbs chapter 14, verse 13, it says, Even in laughter the heart may ache, and, in the, and the end of joy may be grief. There are two very powerful realities on display in that one small verse first half eloquently describes a sad reality that many of us have experienced on our own. It is possible to exhibit the external expression of happiness and joy and contentment. We could have a smile on our face and a light step into the world around us. We seem like content and happy individuals, yet below the surface, behind the smile, 
And beneath the laughter, we are still hurting, depressed. We are a sad mess of an individual. In other words, laughter is often a superficial disguise that hides what we really feel inside. Laughter itself, which can make the heart feel light and can ease the tension of a moment, is never really the true solution to a problem. And often only gets us through the now, the right now. Only delaying the inevitable need to be serious and to face the challenges that are truly before us. So laughter may seem like medicine, but it's not actually contributing to a cure. It's simply helping us to cope with the realities of our difficult condition. It deals with a symptom, but it doesn't heal the core cause. Yes, without it, life would be grim and may at times feel unbearable. But fighting off every serious and heavy moment with the frivolity of laughter is not a wise or sustainable approach to life. I've had to face this when it comes to preparing to preach to this congregation. There's an important question I have to ask myself. Is humor in the pulpit acceptable? I think too often... Pastors use the pulpit to show off their sharp wit. But it can actually work against the thrust of their calling. The purpose that God has brought them into the ministry for is not to make their people laugh, but to bring them to truth. Our subject is life and death, spiritual life and death, judgment and forgiveness, heaven and hell. Is this really something we can afford to take lightly? I don't think it is wrong to have lighthearted moments in a sermon. From time to time, there will be laughter, there will be an ease of tension. But there are times when we need to truly settle in, when the tension should not be broken, when a joke can let someone off the hook that God desires to put into the heart to prick the conscience and make someone truly weigh the consequences of their actions. The things that we need to think about together are weighty and significant. So preaching should not be a light-hearted and entertaining event in your life. There are other areas where laughter and silliness have begun to wield a greater influence than they likely should. Think about the weddings that you've been to lately. Will you make a more solemn promise in your life than when you stand before God and people and say, I am committing myself to very specific promises to this individual. I am desiring to love them the way that God has loved me. And you give instances and examples of how you will stand by that person through sickness and through health, through poverty or wealth, through the challenges and through the joys. Should the one thing you and your guests remember from that special day be the holy promises that you made to one another or the gag that the groomsmen played on the groom in the middle of the ceremony? or the funny dance that was had on the way into the reception, or the wedding guest who had too much to drink and was flirting with everyone. Marriage is a covenant to be entered into soberly, to be thought about with a sincere conscience and a clear heart. And yet so often today, not that you can't have fun at a wedding, but I've seen so many weddings where the whole tenor, the whole theme or the idea of it was just one great big reveling party again. And it just so happened to have some expensive rings involved. We should be thinking some seriously about some of the things of life that we often allow to become a big joke to us. What about funerals? 
Death is real. Life here on earth does not last forever. It deserves to be treated with a sense of gravity and power. Comfort is appropriate because the end of a person's life is a heavy, heavy thing, especially if that loved one had no true faith in Jesus. Now, there is appropriate laughter at times in the context of a person's passing, but if the service is one big joke after another, if it becomes a roast of the person who passed away, there is no mourning, and true grief is lost. This death has been made a mockery of. We need to learn as a society to not think of everything as some lighthearted joke that not everything is a proper target for humor. Ecclesiastes 7.3 says, Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. What does that mean? That means that there are times when sorrow leads us to the place we really need to go, a place that laughter cannot take us. It helps us to see how we've taken someone for granted. It helps us to see our sin. It helps us to Strive for repentance. It helps us to see that we've been trusting the wrong things for our contentment. When we face those things, we trust God to make them right. Then we can have real peace. We can have real joy. And a happiness that lasts can be experienced. So laughter itself may be counterproductive if it is used at the wrong times or if it is simply a means of avoiding what we inevitably need to feel and experience as a part of the process of learning and growing. The second half of that proverb that we looked at earlier reminds us that the activities that we find fun and which bring smiles to our faces may not be honoring to God. These activities which God has restricted or prohibited do have the power to produce a temporary enjoyment in us but their true danger will inevitably lead to the very disappointment that our Creator aimed to spare us from by putting limits around those activities. And a great example to us would be this idea that sexuality is a holy thing that God has given to us as a wonderful grace, as a gift to be experienced in the right parameters in the covenant of marriage. Yet so many people have this concept of free love that if it feels good, you should pursue it, you should do it. And so they ignore God's instruction. They count it in their hearts as being obsolete, old-fashioned, and outdated. And they just run off and do what they want to do. And yet that might bring a temporary happiness. It might bring a temporary pleasure to the individual. But God is trying to guard us from the greater destruction that comes when we covenant our bodies to somebody else without a true covenant of heart, when we act as though we are committed to someone in trust and in love, when in reality that trust does not exist. So many pointless broken hearts when we could simply just think of the words of the Lord and trust that He knows what is best for us. The end of worldly joy can be grief the regret that what we have done is exactly what the Lord warned us would steal our joy away instead of contributing to our joy. And again, I want to emphasize that laughter is not all bad. Laughter humbles us. It helps us to see our faults and our failures, especially if we're not directing that laughter at someone else, but we're directing it at our our own heart, our own character, our own decisions. It acknowledges the irony of man's battle to be in control. So much of, of humor is recognizing that we are not God. That, that it is foolish for us to behave as though we are. 
Only the Lord is supreme. So laughter has its place and it can be good. But is laughter truly the answer to life's problems? Enjoyment in general is an almost universal pursuit. We must acknowledge that. And it's not evil to want to enjoy the life that you have been called to live. John 10.10 says the thief comes only to steal and to kill and to destroy. But I, says Jesus, came that they may have a life and have it abundantly. And so we must strive for this accurate abundance, for this real joy, this this laughter of knowing that God is in control and I'm not, that, that even when I fail, God has overcome it, that God knows what is best for me and that I can truly experience contentment if I walk in the ways that He has laid out. The very serious issue that, that many fail to identify is this. If we see life as one big comedy, then the gospel message itself will make no sense to us. The gospel is a remedy for tragedy. It is a remedy for a terminal condition called sin that ends in terrible punishment and judgment. Every human being who walks this earth is affected by the serious heart condition that the Bible calls sin. And so if we make life into one big comedy and just act like it's all fun and games, then how are we going to get to this really weighty truth that individuals seriously need Jesus in order to experience real joy. James 4, verses 7 through 10 says, Submit yourself therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Not so that God can just keep you in a depressed and needy state all the time, but so that, verse 10, when you have humbled yourself before the Lord, He will exalt you. He will lift you up with true gladness, with true joy, with true contentment. In addition to laughter, the preacher has given himself over to two other effects, one of which is wine. Can wine and other intoxicating substances satisfy us, friends. As the season turns to summer and the days get hotter, you will likely find yourself in a situation where you are in serious need of cooling down. Have you ever stood sweating at the side of a pool because you don't want to experience the initial shock of the temperature change, but you're also very uncomfortable in that 100 degree weather outside of the pool? And you're standing on the edge and you don't know what to do. You go back and forth in your mind because you're just not sure if you want to go through that breathtaking moment where your body is struggling to adjust to the coolness of the water. But you also know that once it does, once your body does adjust, you're going to be so much more comfortable in there. The heat that is zapping your energy will be canceled out and you'll have relief. Wine and other intoxicating substances work in exactly the opposite way. There is an initial happiness that comes from their use. There's a release of stress. There's a feeling of euphoria or relaxation, even intense sensations of ecstasy and bliss. But that initial high, the initial relief that those substances provide are soon canceled out by the inevitable reality that you've got to return to truth. 
and the shame that you often feel for the way that you behaved when you'd surrendered control of your mind weighs heavy on your conscience and your heart and the problems you hope to avoid in that bottle or in that puff are still there when the buzz wears off. Solomon tells us in verse 3 that he gave himself over to the mechanism of wine so that many have turned to as an, uh, the same thing that many have turned to as an answer to the emptiness of life, this chemical escapism. It appeals because in all of its forms there is an initial feeling of, of happiness and relief that is likely to be enjoyed, but that altered mental state comes with a twofold danger. When we seek to be drunk, when we seek to be high, when we seek to experience that numbness, the joy that we feel in the moment is not a real joy. It is, at its very best, synthetic joy. Whether the effect brings you up or mellows you down, it is only a virtual experience that is not rooted in real causes. The brain has been designed by God to produce feelings of happiness and pleasure and elation as a result of some of life's great victories and true experiences. But by bypassing the experiences that lead to that natural elation and just going straight for the chemical sensations that they produce, it robs us of the experience that are supposed to get us to those feelings. And so while they might be better than nothing, they don't quench our thirst for the real thing, for true contentment and happiness as God intended us to experience it. With this chemical tampering of the inner workings of the mind and the emotions comes a corresponding release of inhibitions. The cautions that guard us from the destructive potential of sin drop away and we find ourselves doing things that we wouldn't normally do with a clear mind as if we need to feel even more free from the God who we so easily rebel against in our natural state of sin. And so consider the words of God, His consistent urging to us that the state of mind we should desire is not one of semi-control, it's not one of being buzzed and not knowing what's going to come next. 1 Peter 5.8 says, Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Friends, if you think that you can afford to just have fun on the weekends, your Saturday is for the bottle and your Sunday is for the Lord, and you don't think that's going to eventually get you in the mouth of the lion, you're not paying attention to God's Word. Romans 12.3 For by the grace given to me I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. And how often is pride associated with intoxication? That constant self-assurance, I can handle this. I'm not going to be like those dummies who go off and get drunk and can't handle themselves. I'm not going to be like those fools who try drugs and then get hooked on it and then become dependent upon that for their joy. That's not me. That's, that's a weak person. Friends, we are all weak people. We are all seriously lacking strength and conviction and discipline. Which one of us can say confidently that we will not be taken away with the current of chemical addiction if we start to play in those waters? 
It reminds me of the 16-year-old young man who thinks he's invincible and can do anything he wants to do and that nothing bad will happen to him until his car is wrapped around a telephone pole. Humility, friends, is, is a blessing to us. 1 Peter 1.13 Therefore, preparing your minds for action, being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. If you are a believer, has God saved you just to keep you out of trouble? Or has God saved you for holy things? Has God saved you so that you might be light to a dark world? So that you might at any moment be used by a God who wants to share His truth with the people around you? If you're going to get drunk, if you're going to be swept away by the intoxicating things of this world, by drugs and alcohol or prescription drugs that you don't have a prescription for, then you are putting yourself in a position where God's not going to use you well. You're putting yourself in a position where your mind is not clear enough to articulate the gospel, where your reputation has been so stained that even if you could articulate it well, no one's going to trust you because you're the person who can't even handle themselves. Friends, let us be sober, not just so that we don't fall into sin, but so that God can use us for great and mighty works that He has prepared ahead of time for us to do. More and more we find people using drugs to try to touch that supernatural longing that we're going to learn about here in a few weeks. The preacher of Ecclesiastes is going to tell us that God has put eternity in our hearts. And what that means in a sense is that we know that there is more to this life than just the physical things around us. We understand that we are not just a product of evolution. We know it. We know that there's something bigger and greater. We can't fully understand it. We long for it, but we know there is something more. And nowadays, more and more people are using psychedelic drugs, mushrooms, ayahuasca, hallucinogenics, to try to touch what they think is that eternity, that supernatural, that, that beyond the, the natural law of life, when in reality, what we were truly designed was to fellowship with the supernatural God who is transcendent, who is above and beyond. And that is where we will find our true contentment. The thing that you come to rely on for your joy, if it is not God, inevitably becomes the idol that you will worship as your God. And so recovery ministry is ministry against idolatry. It is ministry against letting something else be your Lord and Savior, your happiness and truth, it is idol ministry. So the preacher of Ecclesiastes has come to see that laughter and wine are not the answers. But what about foolishness? Can foolishness satisfy us? To act foolishly usually implies a headstrong pride in us. When we defy the rules that have been set before us and we just decide we're going to act however we want to act. And if you've ever had a two-year-old or a three-year-old, you know what I'm talking about here. You've seen it in display in your own homes where you know what is best for that child, but they pig-headedly refuse to do what is best for them. I remember um, one of my siblings refusing to go to sleep. And so uh, my stepdad, finally after refusing to fight with her for hours and hours on end, said, okay, you can stay up as long as you want, but you have to stay standing watching this television. And it was about 20 minutes before that sibling of mine started to become heavy 
heavy-eyed, and, 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 and they started to drift off. And, and sure enough, before you knew it, that child slipped into what it really should have wanted in the first place, rest. That which was important to that child, that's what, what that child needed. But even as adults, we often think that the Lord God who reigns over us and knows us so much better than ourselves has no real grasp on what we want and what is best for us. And so part of this idea of foolishness is just stubbornly insisting on going our own way and throwing caution to the wind, disregarding entirely the rules that have been laid before us by nature or by God. And we see the evidence of this in our society where we can't even... We can't even accept the gender that God has given to us. We look in the mirror and we say, I see the truth right before me, but I don't want to accept it. I want to be something that I am not. And we think that that's going to lead us to happiness if we just rewrite the rules and become God for ourselves. That's, that's one expression of foolishness. But here the preacher is not just descending into frivolity. This portion of his quest involves a sincere search or answers that is, is willing to look beyond logic, is very, really look to, willing to look into very unlikely places. Is there some hidden revelation that can only be got at by abandoning logic and abandoning reason and embracing the irrational? We see this in some of the mainstream philosophies such as Eastern mysticism, where people spend hours in meditation to accomplish what? An emptying and emptying. That is the whole goal of Eastern meditation, to think nothing. If I can't find the answer to life's problems in something, then I'll just evacuate my brain and think nothing. See how foolish that is? That it's not going to lead you to any greater understanding of life. It's simply putting in the back of your mind that which should be at the front of your mind. That apart from God there is no contentment or joy. There's futility in this idea of foolishness. Solomon already came to the conclusion that the greatest wisdom of man is vanity compared to what God knows. Nevertheless, he knows that the answer is not found in running in the opposite direction of wisdom. He knows that the contentment he seeks is rooted beyond his understanding, but the path to it is not foolishness. By the end of the very first verse that we read today, Solomon had already predicted what the results of this pursuit of pleasures would be another exercise in vanity. Something that seems to have substance but is in reality just a mirage. The corrupt heart of man cannot find true joy apart from God. The Apostle Paul gives us an evaluation of how the heart of man seeks its fulfillment in all the wrong places in the first chapter of Romans. Helping us to get ready for the exposition he will give to us about what sin is and how it can be overcome by Christ. He says in verse 21, For although they knew God, they meaning all the people of the world, for although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. See how God responds in verse 24. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, 
and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. There's something I want you to take home from this today. God is not intimidated by your pleasures. That thing that you like more than God right now that is distracting you awake, God is not intimidated by it. He knows the emptiness of it already. He knows that those desires that so often distract us will fall short. And so He is willing to turn us over to them. Even our best attempts to fulfill ourselves with happiness only result in the production of more and more idols that we worship until we realize they're not satisfying because they're not truly God. And we're scrambling to invent more idols, better idols. God is showing us Listen, if this is what you want, then pursue it and see what kind of true happiness you find in it. Those whom He has called will see their downfall. Those whom He has given a soft heart and have made faith a reality in their lives, they will see that the answers to their questions do not lie in the pleasures of the world, but lie beyond it. Joy is not the problem, friends. The problem is that we settle for the shadows of true joy rather than pursuing the real thing. We settle for the shadows of true joy, for the echoes of truth rather than truth itself. There's a, a pastor you're probably familiar with named John Piper, and he has come up with this idea called Christian hedonism. It's in response to the misconceptions that to become a Christian means to abandon happiness and to live a stoic, disciplined, sad life of obedience. In reality, he argues that, that the Christian is called to be the most joyful individual in the world. We must understand, according to John, that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. If you are not finding your joy in Jesus Christ, you are settling for a knockoff of joy. The problem is not that we put too much emphasis on enjoyment, but rather that we seek enjoyment in the trivial passing things of this world rather than seeking true enjoyment in the greatest pleasure of all, which is this awesome God who has called us to Himself. To follow Jesus is not to forsake joy. It is to cast aside the shadow of joy in exchange for the realities of true contentment and fulfillment that can only be found in the Savior. Our natural definitions of happiness are deficient, so we should scrap them. We should go back to the drawing board and then hand the pen over to the Lord God and allow Him to write the playbook for joy for us. What a dangerous set of scriptures Ecclesiastes is. Because it takes so many of our secret idols, those things that we cling to, those things that we think are going to give us joy that won't. And it shows us that they're worthless. That they're worthless in light of the greater things that the Lord calls us to desire. He redefines our joy as being near to Him and experiencing the lasting blessings of eternity because of who He is and what He has done on our behalf. That's how a young virgin girl can have her life interrupted and her dreams put on hold. She was planning to marry Joseph the love of her life. She was planning on starting a family of her own, but God intervenes and says, what you thought was joy is not what I have prepared for you. And she says yes to God. 
even though she knows that Joseph's not going to understand, and he doesn't at first. He almost sets her aside. He almost forsakes her. If it were not for the intervention of God and a faithful heart. She knows that people are going to look upon her pregnancy and think, that's not from the Lord, that's from sin. And they're going to judge her. And yet her concept of joy, she scraps it and says, God has a plan for me. I will follow that plan. This is exactly how Abram can receive a divine challenge. Leave all that you know, put your life on hold, and follow me to somewhere new, to a place that you are not familiar with. I'm not going to tell you everything that's going to happen, but I'll promise you this, that from you, much blessing will come. Through you, I will be a blessing to the world, to the nations of the world. That is how an up-and-coming Pharisee named Saul, who had so much going for him, can see a vision from above, one that does not fit his preconceived notions or his interpretations of Scripture, one that, if true, would turn his whole world upside down. And yet in this revelation of Jesus, where Saul is called to stop persecuting the church and to rather take up its mantle cry, to preach its gospel, Saul leaves all behind. Listen to how Paul describes this exchange. He's not regretting what he has abandoned. He doesn't feel at a great loss that he was on track to be one of the greatest Pharisees ever. Philippians 3, verses 7-9, through 9, But whatever gain I had, I counted it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing truth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Ecclesiastes, friends, is a dangerous book because the worldly things you loved are proven to be unworthy of worship. But it is also a tremendously exciting book and that God can use it to lay waste to the wasteful pursuits that preoccupied our wandering hearts and chart a new course for a heavenly joy that overwhelms the emptiness of a life lived in God, or lived in ignorance of God. So delight in the Lord, my friends, but take greater joy in this, that even more important than what you delight in is what the Lord God delights in. And it is His delight to take wretched sinners like us and to redeem us for His glory. While you are seeking happiness for yourself, the Lord God was willing to humble Himself and take on flesh and to leave the comforts of heaven to come into our mess and chaos so that He might live the perfect life, completely fulfilling the law of God. He had your happiness in mind. He knew that by redeeming you, a greater joy would be experienced by you. Rejoice in what the Lord delights in. He delights in transformation. He delights in redeeming the lost and making them holy vessels. Once we were, were vessels for destruction under the wrath of God, and He can make us new and alive in Him. Thank the Lord God that He delights in that kind of salvation over us. Would you bow your heads with me as we close in a word of prayer. God, we thank You for Your grace. And we thank You that in all things, Lord, You are to be glorified. There is nothing that compares to You, God. And we confess today that, that in many, many, many times, in many ways, Lord, we try to find our happiness and contentment in, in what does not deserve our attention at all. Father, instead, God, give us clear eyes to understand that this world that you have made is a place to enjoy, but it is, it is not the ends. It is not 
even the means by which you are going to give us true contentment. I pray that we would revel in Christ Jesus and the work that he has done for us. Help us to see your delight in saving sinners like us, Lord God. Help us to rejoice in the power you have over our sin. We love you and thank you and ask that in all things you'd be lifted up and magnified in Jesus' name.